Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 Despite their penchant for avoiding the evidence of the mimetic construction of the self, we can thank the psychological sciences for revealing in their explication of the transference the fact that the original self is mimetically constituted and that no serious renewal of the subject can occur without a transference of the mimetic problematic from the original model to another. In the conventional psychoanalytic framework, however, it is transferred to the therapist, and then the therapist tries to hand it back to the patient. And the patient always resists that, and I think the patient is smarter than the therapist. Because the therapist is operating under the illusion that we are entitative selves and that it ought, to be, it ought to be back inside you somewhere, where it belongs. But the patient, that is all of us, knows at the core of his being that it ain't so. And that's, that's the resistance to the re resolving the transference crisis in psychoanalysis. The crowd is still groping for a way to put the emancipating power of Jesus' message and personality back into the tube of conventional religion. They sense a parallel between what he did at the feeding of the, of the multitude and the manna that Moses provided in the desert. And they seem ready to entertain one more messianic expectation, which is that the dawning of the messianic age would coincide with a renewal of the gift of manna. So they begin to think along these terms. And uh, once again, Jesus is there to not contradict them, but to take what they say and redefine it. They say to him, Our fathers had manna to eat in the desert. And Jesus says, It was not Moses who gave you manna. It was my father who gives, present tense, you bread from heaven, the true bread. And they said, Fine, give us that bread. And he said, I am the bread of life. He said, no, let's get back to the question here. You want to talk about bread? I want to talk about believing. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me, believes in me, will never thirst. What manna did for those thrown into the social and psychological crisis by the exigencies of the wilderness wanderings, Jesus is going to do for those thrown into a similar crisis uh, by his own ministry. That is to say, he's, he offers himself as the new manna. What did the old manna do? And I'm just going to summarize this very briefly. The, old man, uh, the story of the old manna begins with an uprising called in the, new, the Old Testament a murmuring, a complaining of the people. But it's really an uprising against Moses and Aaron. And the uprising is, uh, has as its as its apparent focus, the, the question of food. But you have to understand, these uprisings may have this as a focus. That may be the, the beef, so to speak. But that's not the issue. The issue is the social uprising. And, you'll, and we can see that. It's not a matter of uh, nutrition. It's a matter of how to deal with a social crisis. And Yahweh gives uh, the people manna after Moses makes his petition. But not simply and straightforwardly. There's a rule. The rule that goes with manna is the following. Everyone must gather enough of it for his own needs, 
one omer ahead according to the number of persons in, his, in each family. No one must keep any of it for tomorrow. And then it says, but some would not listen to Moses. They kept part of it for the following day. It bred maggots, smelled foul, and Moses grew angry with them. It's the fine print on the, on the gift of manna that we have to read, which says, this, what makes manna manna is that it's not available as a social commodity which can generate the same kind of rivalry that gave rise to the, to the crisis in the first place in the community. That's to say, you can't hoard it. You can't be, it can't become the object of wealth and uh, create uh, divisions within the community between those who have and those who have not. It has to be daily bread uh, and, uh, and, and so on. Now, to say that manna is instituted as a way of preventing social, a social breakdown may seem like I'm stretching things. But if you go to the book of Numbers, you get a story where you really see the anthropological background of manna, which has more to do with the injunction attached to it than with the stuff itself, than with food. It has to do with, the, with preventing a rivalry from breaking out inside the community. And here's what it says in the book of Numbers. The, the, uh, the rabble who had joined the people were overcome by greed. The sons of Israel themselves began to wail again. Who will give us meat to eat, they said. Think of the flesh we had to eat in Egypt. The cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Here we're wasting away, stripped of everything. There's nothing but manna for us to look at. We're sick of it. See? And so, they're, they're, in, they're uprising again. Manna's not good enough. <coughs> a wind, Yahweh, uh, Moses pleads, Yahweh, uh, a wind comes from Yahweh and it drove quail in from the sea and brought them down into the camp. Knee deep, they lay all around the camp, more quail than you could count, more quail than you could possibly eat. And it says the people were up all that day and night and all the next day collecting quail. The least gathered by anyone was ten homers. Then they spread them out around the camp. And this is bounty. And then it says, and this is, you see this, the theory, the theory is that uh, bounty or plenty will solve our social crises. The problem with these social crises are generated when we say, oh, the problem is that uh, some people have more and some people have less. Let's just get more stuff, create more stuff, everything. This will be fine. We'll... And so this is what happens. They're quail, and then it says, the meat was still in their teeth, not even chewed, when the anger of Yahweh blazed out against the people. Yahweh struck them with a very great plague. Now, we have reasons to highly suspect that references to plagues have to do with social breakdowns. The anger of Yahweh is a, is a way of talking about human violence. No doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Something happened a social breakdown happens and violence happens. And then the next verse in the story says the name given to the place was Kibroth Hatava because it was there that they buried people who had indulged their greed. Hib uh, Hibroth Katava means the graves of the greedy. Well, manna is an alternative to that. And if Jesus is going to be the new manna, 
he's come to exactly the right place because here's what happens. The next thing the story says, Meanwhile, the Jews began murmuring to each other because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. The very act of offering himself as manna causes them to behave the way the Israelites behaved in the wilderness. That is to say that he has begun to deconstruct their social arrangements and they're falling into a crisis and they're murmuring. It's a, it's a community in need of manna. That is to say something that will prevent the murmuring. And Jesus says to them, stop murmuring. And this is, by the way, this is the Greek translation of the same word that's used in the, in the Exodus story. I am the living bread, he said. I am the living bread. And anyone who eats this bread that I give, that is my flesh, uh, will have eternal life. They begin to argue with one another now. They were murmuring, and now it's arguing. This word, this verb means uh, something right on the threshold of violence. They're now arguing with each other. And it says they were arguing, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But it doesn't matter what they were arguing about. In a structural level, it doesn't even matter what they were arguing. The point is, this is a crowd that's arguing with each other at the point of violence. And he says to them, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Now, we have to really understand what he means by that verb, eat. Because I think he's absolutely right. If you do not eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. He says then, and this now we can understand what he means by eat. Eating is believing. Eating is believing in this gospel. See? This shows you how radical, to, to say that shows you how radical the word believing is. He says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. That's the defining verse of all of this discourse. In other words, the reference to eating and the reference to belief has to do with producing this situation. He lives in me and I live in him. That is the hypostatic relationship. All of this talk and all of the Eucharistic uh, 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 insights that flow from it come finally back down to that. Uh, Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. It's all aimed at that. That's the radical meaning of believing and the radical meaning of eating and drinking. He says, as I, who am sent by the living Father, myself draw life from the Father, so whoever eats me will draw life from me. That's the hypostatic or hypostatic relationship. That's the source of the new anthropology. That is the source of the, of the, of, of the new self, the reconstituted, recreated self, the, what Paul calls the new man. Eating has to do with breaking down the barrier between the consumer and the consumed. And the barrier is the barrier of entitative selfhood. I'm me, I'm over here, you're, you're you, you're over there. That's fine in this sort of billiard ball social world we live in. But it will not do when it comes to grounding the self. If, if the cannibalistic innuendo was what made it radical to the first century. 
What makes it radical to our century, just as radical, is the way in which it deconstructs the entitative self, the idea of, a, of an individual self. They were clinging to a social construction of the self, a cultic construction of the self, and we cling to an individual construction of the self, but the gospel deconstructs them both and is scandalous to both of them. Believe. And we say, oh, believe, I know. Well, that means uh, you think that he's a great one and uh, or go to church or say the creed or something. No. Believe means to eat. You see, eat means to break down. It's a radical integration. It's a radical integration. The self is no longer a cultural product and no longer an individual phenomenon. So that we read Paul. Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's precisely what it's all driving. I'd like now to turn to the question of the sacramental implication of this conversation in this gospel about eating and believing and so on. And to begin, I want to start with where the passage where Jesus says to the crowd, you see me, but you do not believe. And the verb he uses is a simple verb for seeing. A few verses later, he says, It is my Father's will that whoever sees the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And the verb he uses there for seeing is theorain, which is a verb for a particularly uh, potent form of seeing, a concentration, an attentiveness that is focused, sharply focused attentiveness. And it's the word, the root of that word is the root of the word theory. Uh, and in our world, we think of theory, theory has become a mere shadow of its uh, etymological self, you know, because we think of theory almost as a synonym for something that's not true. It's just a theory. Uh, and I think we have to recover something of this idea of the theory as the organizing principle in order to uh, appreciate. In other words, how to see in such a way that what we have seen becomes the organizing principle. And then it begins to make sense. But if we simply see in a sort of casual, well, look here and then look there and look at the other place and sort of have, try to make all the random observations somehow, catalog them, we never get anywhere. We have to see with this incredible focus and intensity. And then this theorem, this theory, radical theory, produces some real sense of what's going on. And it does so as a result of two things. One is the power of the observer's attentiveness. And that is what I think the evangelist means by the word believe. And second is by the presence in the observer's mind of a governing principle that has genuine epistemological power. And I think that's what the cross is. So the theory of the, of the theory that, that is behind this verb to see is the revelation, the Christian revelation, is a theory in the sense that it provides a sharp focus for one's attention and a, a uh, governing principle for the understanding of reality, namely the cross. And those two things give us a, a way of making sense out of the world that looks like it's, it's coming apart. So I would like to, to, to look through that kind of theory, the Christian revelation, 
at the Eucharistic implications of this talk about um, eating the flesh of Jesus and so on. In the past, as some of you know, I've used uh, the two... I've talked about the old Anthropos and the new Anthropos, the old anthropology and the new anthropology, uh, in terms of the sacrificial and the sacramental. And I think, probably because of my own religious background, I still find that the most encompassing ways of thinking about those two realities. But I want to use, for the next few minutes, Owen Barfield's reflection on history and on the Eucharist in order to uh, draw out some things that are implicit in the, in the Johannine text. Barfield was an English philosopher and philologist who wrote some very interesting, if eccentric, little books. And one of them is called Saving the Appearances. And the quotations that I have for you are from his book on Saving the Appearances. And Barfield talks about uh, participation. You know the French anthropologists talk about participation mystique. Uh, the the primitive participation in which uh, the, the 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 self is not an entitative self it's, it blurs with its social and its natural uh, world in that experience the world is meaningful and Barfield calls that original participation and then he says we have been breaking down original participation and what we have to look to now is what he calls final participation. Another kind of participation, entirely different, uh, but one that is fully as meaningful or far more so than original participation. In the very last sentence of his book, he says this, the other name for original participation is, after all, paganism. What Barfield, I'll say this before I begin to quote him, what he failed to notice was the sacrificial origin of pagan participation. For him, the salient feature of, of this uh, pagan participation was this sort of infantile imagination that, that uh, saw everything as, as uh, uh, blurred together and interconnected and peopled the world with demons and gods and so on and so forth. What he saw, however, what Barfield saw, however, was the psychological effect of original participation, the very thing that made it meaningful and valuable, namely, and I'm namely what he called the totemic mind. And here's how he defines the totemic mind. The self and not-self identified in the same moment of experience. That's the totemic mind. That's the essence of original participation. But as I say, he failed to see this, the, uh, uh, the role of sacrifice in generating that mind and the unitive experience that it enjoys. Barfield says the needful virtue is that which combats the besetting sin and for him the besetting sin was this befuddled woolly mindedness so I think he misunderstood the besetting sin I think the besetting sin is is violence sacrificial mob violence what's remarkable about uh, Barfield however is that even though he misrecognized the role of violence in all this he did understand somehow that the needful virtue the source of the needful virtue was the Christ event and he even understood that it was the crucifixion, but he couldn't quite figure out why it was the crucifixion, but he knew it was. But he never could figure out why it was the crucifixion because the only problem was woolly-mindedness. You know, why did it have to be the crucifixion? You see, he didn't see the sacrificial element of it. But despite that, he, he put his finger on the, 
on the same thing that you would put your finger on if you did see the sacrificial element. What I want to try to do is put the Eucharist into this historical context using Barfield. Barfield says, quote, The children of Israel became a nation and began their history the moment when Moses, in the very heart of the ancient Egyptian civilization, delivered to them those Ten Commandments, which include the unheard of injunction, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Barfield goes on. This is perhaps the unlikeliest thing that ever happened. Everywhere throughout the world, original participation was in full swing. For the Jews, from that moment on, original participation and anything smacking of it became a deadly sin. And what is the Old Testament but the tale of their long struggle against that very sin, their repeated relapses, and their final victory? So for the first time, according to Barfield, the first time in the history of the world, a people declared the universal business of religion to be religious apostasy, namely the making of idols and the worshiping of them. The image, by the way, is just a concretization of myth. So, the, so ancient Israel's aversion for the image in the second commandment is a specification of its aversion for myth. Barfield says the world of original participation, largely because of the effect of the biblical revelation on us, is a lost world. Gradually, we have extricated ourselves from that original participation, very largely under the influence of the biblical aversion for its mystifications. But then Barfield says, it is a lost world, although the whole purpose of this book, he says, is to show that its spiritual wealth can be, and indeed, if incalculable disasters to be avoided, must be regained. In other words, the spiritual wealth is the sense of the world as a whole, the experience of the meaning of one's life and, its, and the life of the world. And, and I would say, after that, the meaning of history. Because we now know, we live in history the way ancient people lived in nature. And we cannot, modern romantics to the contrary notwithstanding, we cannot make meaning out of our lives without making meaning out of history. We no longer live in nature in the same way that the ancients did. We live in history and we have to make sense out of it. So not only must we feel our, our, our belonging in nature, but we also have to feel our sense of place in history. But, he says, no good can come of any attempt to hark back to original participation from which we came. And that's an important thing because the romantic impulse is to hark back. Barfield says, if we succeed in eliminating all original participation without substituting anything for it, all we will have done is to eliminate meaning and coherence from our lives. If we don't have that, we will do what the crowd did when Jesus uh, broke bread in their presence. That is to say, we will try to reconstitute it in a primitive way. And I think that is now what is happening uh, in the world. There were uh, two reviews in last Sunday's New York Times book review on the same page, they began on the same page, which touched on that. One is a review of uh, uh, 
Jibnu Brzezinski's, I don't say his name very well, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, he has a book called Out of Control, Global Turmoil on the Eve of the 21st Century. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan has a book called Pandemonium, Ethnicity in International Politics. Uh, they make for pretty sober reading. Uh, the review, New York Times book review begins the review of uh, Brzezinski's book by saying, during the 20th century, says Brzezinski, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, more than 167 million people were, quote, deliberately extinguished through politically motivated carnage. 167 million people. Next time somebody talks to you about the evolution of consciousness, you might want to drop that figure. As is suggested by the title of this chilling new book, that the, the reviewer goes on, Mr. Brzezinski does not think the killing is over. He, the reviewer of Moynihan's book says Moynihan's organizing principle, ethnicity, is too shaky because when you look around at these things that are going on in the world, uh, <clears throat> these spasms of frenzy often are happening with no serious ethnic distinction between the opponents or with the ethnic organizing principle, so-called ethnic or organizing principle of a particular group being very tenuous. And I think the point there is that ethnicity is not really the issue. Ethnicity is simply the, the accidental uh, aspect that is being seized upon by people being thrown into this vortex. And they, they have to seize on something. And ethnicity seems an available thing to seize upon. I mention those because Barfield says, if all we do is eliminate original participation and we offer the world no path to another form of participation, the world will finally thumb its nose at us and return to original participation. And the return will shock us because we didn't see the sacrificial element that generated original participation in the first place, but we'll see it now because the crucifixion has made it clear to us. We'll recognize its horrors. Okay, so back to Barfield. He says, if you look back over history and you see the dynamic that's running through history and you trace back its origins, here's what you find. Here's his summation of it. In the heart of that nation whose whole impulse had been to eliminate original participation, a man was born who simultaneously identified himself with and carefully distinguished himself from the creator of the world, whom he called Father. On the one hand, quote, I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me, etc. On the other, I and the Father are one, etc. In one man, the final participation, whereby man's creator speaks from within himself, had been accomplished. The word had been made flesh. In other men, though we have pointed to certain mainly trivial premonitory symptoms, that conscious realization has still barely begun to show itself. Except that the tender shoot of final participation has from the first been acknowledged and protected by the church in the institution of the Eucharist. For all who partake of the Eucharist first acknowledge that the man who was born in Bethlehem was, quote, of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That of one substance is hypostasis, of one substance. And then they take that substance into themselves, together with its, repre its representations named bread and wine. This is, after all, the heart of the matter. 
There is no difficulty in understanding it as long as enough of the old participating consciousness survived. It was only as it faded that the difficulties and doctrinal disputes concerning transubstantiation began to grow. Transubstantiation is Paul saying, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's transubstantiation. And the more we lost original participation, we lost any sense of what Paul was talking about. Paul was not in original participation. But we were when we read his letters. And so it sort of made sense to us. But as we, as the biblical revelation deprived us more and more of the original participation, more and more Paul's statement didn't make any sense at all. Nor did the Eucharist, really. And so we got into arguments about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and what's going on. It goes back to the hypostatic nature of existence. What the Gospels reveal clearer than Barfield sees is that it is not, an, uh, it is not a, that subjectivity, radical subjectivity, is never individual. It's always interdividual. It's Christ saying, I and the Father are one, or Paul saying, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Barfield says, the relation between original and final participation in the Eucharistic act is, as we should expect, in the utmost degree, complex and mysterious. Remember, this, the hypostatic union of Christ and the Father is passed on to humanity through belief so that we become the hypostasis of Christ, as Paul was. This is, the, this is what the New Testament is revealing to us. The Eucharist represents the, the, uh, the sacramental... The Eucharist is a sacramental occasion for reinforcing that fact, for breaking down the entitative self in the presence of Christ so as to fall more fully under uh, his influence. So that is to say, to enter into what Barfield calls final participation with the Father through Christ. Barfield says, Thus, the relationship between the original and final participation in the Eucharistic act is, as we should expect, in the utmost degree complex and mysterious. If we accept at all the claims made by Christ Jesus concerning his own mission, we must accept that he came to make possible in the course of time the transition of all men from original to final participation. And we shall regard the institution of the Eucharist as a preparation. A preparation we shall not forget, which has so far only been operant for the sidereally paltry period of 1900 years or so. The revelation is historical. It has a historical, it's part, it sets in motion a historical process. It's gradual. Here's Barfield trying to figure out how to, what to do about the crucifixion. He knows the crucifixion is central, but but he doesn't know why it's central, because he didn't see the sacrificial element in original participation. He says this, Logically, there was a possibility of a gentle, untragic transition from original to final participation, the one maturing in proportion as the other faded. Within the limits of this sort of speculation, we can even say that this was, it was this which was, quote, intended. That rebirth, however, he says, did not take place. The crucifixion did. 
I think that's just an incredible statement. It shows that he that even though he didn't see the sacrificial nature of original participation, he he saw clearly that the crucifixion was the deconstruction of it. I said at the beginning, after Jesus feeds the multitude, he gathered up twelve baskets. Um, his mission and his life caused in that episode a shattering, a breaking, as I said before, a breaking of the of the ritual and cultural structures, of the social arrangements, of the psychological accommodations and so on, a shattering. And then at the end he says, gather up the fragments. And the the phrase gather up the fragments is a Eucharistic phrase used for the the little assignment that has to be carried out after the Eucharist in the early church. Gather up the fragments. So after this event, uh, he gathers them up. And as I say, the people tried to gather up the fragments in their own way, the making king and so on and so forth. When he gathers them up, they, they, they fill 12 baskets. So his efforts to gather up the fragments... Uh, resulted in the number of 12. At the end of this episode, he speaks to, quote, the 12, namely the, his followers. But I think there is a structural relationship between the number of baskets gathered up, the number of baskets of fragments, and the 12 he speaks to at the end. Remember that story about them being lost on the turbulent uh, uh, seas? They were shattered they were, they were fractured people, and they knew it. And he has gathered them up. The rest of the crowd went off trying to make itself a king, trying to survive, trying to return to the old answer post. But these 12 didn't. These 12 were his basket cases, so to speak. <laughs> and, he wa- and he was gathering them up. He was going to start new. You see, it's, it's a structural thing. One starts new with that fragmented existence. And he gathers up the twelve. And when, the, and then at the very end, when he speaks to the twelve, he says, after everybody else has left him, he says, what about you? Do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter, in one of the most touching things in this gospel, I think, answers, Lord, whom else would we follow? Peter now knows there's no going back and he knows that everything depends on discipleship, on the hypostatic relationship to another. And there's no way... He's, he says, it's too late. We can't go back to the cultural envelope and who else? Who else is there? And Jesus takes those fragments and begins the process of putting them back together, and I think that's a Eucharistic process in part. So I'm going to end, finally going to end, with two four-line poems that have to do with fragmenting. And they're, I thought of them because I thought they were appropriate for good uh, for Holy Thursday, but really they're more appropriate for the day between Good Friday and Easter. Uh, the first is from Leonard Cohen, one of his songs where he says, ring the bells that still can ring. 
this is, I don't want to, but the idea that we are moving from original to final participation uh, means that we're constantly being disabused of, of certain kind of uh, conventional ritual and so on. And in a certain way, I read that almost into this line that there are fewer and fewer bells that we can ring still, you know. So Leonard Cohen says, ring, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And finally, it's four lines from Stanley Kunitz's poem entitled, A Kind of Order, A Kind of Folly, which is a marvelous title for the, for the uh, what we've been talking about. He says, Once again I heard the transubstantial word that is not mine to speak unless I break. I break. Once again I heard the transubstantial word that is not mine to speak unless I break. I break. This week somebody gave me a cartoon which is the best synthesis I've ever seen of the doctrine of original sin and uh, the Girardian insights into the mimetic constitution of the self. It's a cartoon, the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, the Bill Waterman cartoon. And in the first frame, Calvin asked Hobbes, do you think babies are born sinful? that they come into the world as sinners. And the next frame, Hobbes the tiger is carefully uh, balancing himself as he walks across this log over a stream. And his answer is, no, I think they're just quick studies. <laughs> and then finally, in the last little thing, Hobbes is thinking to himself, whenever you discuss certain things with animals, you get insulted. <laughs> So whether we're born sinners or we're quick studies, it all pretty much amounts to the same thing. And we are quick studies. That's what makes us human beings. Last week we talked about chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. And this week I want to talk about chapter 5 and 7 and 8. matter of fact, really take a lot in. But I'm not going to dwell on the, uh, each passage, of course. But I'm going to touch on what I think are the salient points and the overall theme that's being Discussed, and I want to start with the cure of the sick man at the pool of Bethsaida in, at the beginning of chapter 5. But in this story and in the other uh, passages that I want to talk about today, I want to, as I've tried to do in the past, I want to look at the meaning of the story at several levels. I want to see the, the, what the story says about Christian conversion. I've said this, this gospel is the autobiography of the evangelist and his community. And so in telling this story of the rehabilitation of the, of the sick man 
uh, and the others that follow, we're, we're being told about the nature of Christian conversion. So I want to look, look at that. Uh, secondly, I want to look at the evangelist insights, revolutionary insights, into the nature of selfhood. And thirdly, I want to attend to uh, the underlying polemic in this gospel, and that is the tension between the Johannine community and its understanding of the Christian revelation, or to put it another way, its Christology, which is a very high Christology, uh, and, the, and, and the more traditional churches of the time, first century churches' understanding of Jesus and his Christological uh, stature. So I want to attend to that polemic. And lastly, and perhaps maybe not most significantly, I guess the conversion aspect is the most significant, but uh, very significant for our time, I think, is I want to look at the structural and anthropological implications of the passages that we, that we look at today. I want to start with the last of these first. I want to look at the structural and anthropological implications that... Uh, that are in the background of this story about the curing of the sick man at uh, the pool of Bethsaida. And I'll just read the first <clears throat> verse or two and then stop and, and uh, explore this anthropological background and then come back to the story and read it and think about it in terms of uh, Christian conversion and the polemic between the Johannine community and the, and the more, more Jewish Christians uh, and the and, uh, uh, this evangelist's insight into the nature of selfhood. So the story begins with a Jewish festival. We're not told what festival. Scholars try to ferret that out as best they can, but for our purposes, it's not particularly significant. Uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. At uh, the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a building called Bethsaida in Hebrew, or uh, Bethesda sometimes consisting of five porticos, and under these were crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the water to move. This was a sort of a healing pool that bubbled up like a spring, and, and when it bubbled up, uh, its healing properties, it was supposed to have healing properties, and uh, people tried to get into it while it was still bubbling to be healed and so on. I'll come back to all that later. But first thing I want to talk about is this sheep gate. The sheep gate was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem, through which sheep were led to the temple to be slaughtered. So, if we look at this reference structurally, and I emphasize this word structurally because, and I'm probably going to use it too often, uh, but I've, I have learned to read these texts now structurally as well as uh, hermeneutically, interpretively, as well as symbolically and historically and so on. Structurally, that's, it doesn't have anything to do with what the author necessarily intended. The fact that we have a mention of the sheep gate and a, poo, a group of uh, cripples gathered round the area at the sheep gate. And the sheep gate serves its purpose in relationship to the sacrificial temple. Uh, it's... It, it may have been coincidental at one level, but at a structural level, it's not coincidental. And so I want to pursue, the, pursue that. In the book of Nehemiah, which is a post-exilic uh, book, after the Israelites come back from exile and they are rebuilding the temple, the rebuilding of the sheep gate was a priestly duty. 
That is to say, the sheep gate served explicitly as part of the sacrificial system. It was the holding area for the potential victims of the sacrifice. Now, in Jesus' time, sickness was equated with sin, as we will see when we get to the story in chapter 9 of the man born blind. Uh, a, a, a physical defect or a physical illness was regarded as punishment for sin, one's own, one's family's, one's uh, ancestors, whatever. Uh, but one, all sickness was a punishment for sin. So the fact of sickness itself or, di- or, or, or crippledness uh, indicated a moral uh, problem. So we have already a group of uh, semi-outcasts in the sheep gate or at the sheep gate, the place traditionally associated with, the, with uh, uh, housing the victims before the necessary sacrifice. In order to understand so many of these healing stories in the New Testament, we have to understand the moral reproach that attached itself to physical or mental disability. Now, I'm suggesting there's a structural relationship here, and now I want to go back and investigate it, but I'm going to move all the way out of the Hebrew cultural framework and look at the Greek world and then come back and look at the Hebrew world. An integral part of the sacrificial system of ancient Athens was its, uh, the role of the pharmakos. The pharmakos was the sacrificial victim. In order to give you a flavor for the pharmakos system in ancient Athens, I'll quote to you from Girard's uh, comment about it, one of his comments about it in Violence in the Sacred, and then go to a, a, an older source that also has a reference to it that's very interesting, I think. Here's what Girard says. The city of Athens prudently kept on hand a number of unfortunate souls. You know, when Girard says prudently, he's being ironic, you understand. Uh, These unfortunate souls, whom it maintained at public expense for appointed times as well as in certain emergencies. Whenever some calamity threatened, plague, famine, foreign invasion, or internal dissension, there was always a pharmakos at the disposal of the community, a surrogate victim. By the way, our word pharmacy comes from this word. The, pharma- the word pharmakos meant both medicine and poison. If it was administered in the right dose, it was medicine. If it got out of hand, it was poison. Gerard uh, goes on. The pharmakos was, in, in, uh, when one of these emergencies presented itself, which is a social the kind of social tension just before class, the the verdict in the Rodney King beating case is just coming down this morning. Just before class, we're sitting here talking about the tension in Los Angeles during the weeks prior to this verdict and so on. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen today. That's precisely the kind of tension that Gerard is talking about, that the pharmaco system served to, uh, to drain away. He says... The pharmacos was paraded about the city. He was used as a kind of, kind of sponge to mop up impurities. And afterwards, he was expelled from the community or killed in a ceremony that involved the entire populace, end quote. So the pharmacos was a, sort of a magnet that drew to himself all of these animosities so that instead of being, instead of rancor between citizens, all citizens focused their, their 
a contempt on one common object and drove him out, and the community was restored to its social harmonies. You'll remember in the uh, story in Luke of the Jesus' cure of the Gerizim demoniac, uh, when Jesus removes the the pharmacos, so to speak, if I can use that word in reference to, to biblical stories, when he eliminated the pharmacos from the uh, from the Gerizim community, the ge- community fell into crisis. And right after he cures him, you have this interesting passage. Quote, The entire population of the Gerizim territory in, was in a state of panic and asked Jesus to leave them. Now this is very interesting, again, structurally. The very last line of Gerard's comment on the pharmacos, he says that the the pharmacos, after all of this animosity was focused on him, was expelled or killed in a ceremony that involved, quote, the entire populace. Just to show you how accurately, at a structural level, the, the Gospels deconstruct this system, you have that passage in Luke 8.37 where it says, the entire population of the Gerizim territory, entire population, was in a state of panic and asked Jesus to leave them. The Gerizim community uses Jesus as, as a scapegoat. They expel Jesus a, as a way of returning to, as a way of reviving themselves in the midst of this panic that was the onset of which was the cure of their existing scapegoat. So they expel Jesus as a way of trying to gather themselves back together. The term for pharmacos in the biblical context is the scapegoat. Speaking of which, uh, Gilbert Murray whose uh, 1911 Harvard lecture set a standard for inquiry into the Greek antiquity, and by the way, a man who uh, had no opportunity to be influenced by Girard's work, noted, uh, quote, that the word pharmakos means literally human medicines or scapegoats. And uh, Murray went on to note that for the most part, these pharmacoi rituals were ritualized enactments of human sacrifice, but only that. And drawing on an account of a third-century historian, Ister, Murray described the ritual, and let me read this account to you. It seems like we're going far afield. Suddenly we just took one little passage in the story, now we're out into the Greek universe. But I want to try to come back with a sense of the decisiveness of the Gospels once we do this. Murray describes the Easter account of the pharmacoi ritual. Two persons, one of them for the men and one for the women, were led out as though to execution. They wore necklaces, one of white figs, the other of black. They seemed to have been solemnly presented with cake and figs and then scourged and pelted out of the city. I hasten to add, Murray says, that the scourging was done with little twigs and skilli, ineffective objects. I'm not sure what a skilli is. He quotes the Greek. Uh, but obviously some mere gesture. And then he goes on to say, The victims are said to have been volunteers chosen for their ugliness. And various smaller details in the ceremony are meant to be grotesque and absurd. One would love to know what these little details are because in light of what we now know, 
they would no doubt be revealing. Murray goes on. At the end, the pharmacoi were supposed to be dead, and their ashes were thrown into the sea. The ceremony was an imitation, says Ister, of a stoning to death, end quote. <clears throat> now, if we refuse to be charmed by this otherwise charming ritual, we will recognize behind the little twigs and the bouquets with which the brightly clad performers were pelted an actual act, in the first instance a spontaneous one, and which Ister says was a stoning. Likewise, we can recognize a vestigial hint of the Jewish pharmacy, if I could call it that, in the crowd of those gathered who at the sheep gate who were both physically defective and morally suspect. Moreover, we can trace back the Jerusalem temple for which the sheep gate served as a served a function, and we can trace it back as we did with the charming festivities back to the stoning. We can trace the temple itself back to a sacrificial event which was identical, namely a stoning. And I would like to take, the, take a minute or two just to do that. If the twigs and bouquets of the pharmacoi ritual had once been bludgeons and whips and stones, behind the imposing edifice of the Jerusalem temple stands a whole series of sacrificial adaptations that lead back ultimately to the same event, the stoning. In the book of Joshua, and I'll just summarize this as quickly as I can. In the book of Joshua, one who violated the ban, uh, the, the, uh, Joshua led the Israelites in, uh, against a, a foreign, I mean, an alien city, Canaanite city. And there was the ban, which means everything must be destroyed. And one man of, uh, 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 disobeyed the ban. He took something. By the way, the way they found which man it was who had violated the ban was by drawing straws. And then they knew who had violated the ban. Just to let you know, the Bible, what the Bible does is it shows us the arbitrariness of the selection of the victim. When Caiaphas says, it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed, he does not specify the one. It didn't really matter. Turns out they chose precisely the wrong one, but that's the reason we're all here. Anyway, <clears throat> this, the one who was chosen, found to be in violation of the ban, was a man named Akon. And he was stoned, he was accused publicly by, by, by Joshua, and then the text said, all Israel stoned him. Unanimity minus one. All Israel stoned him. And then it says, a great mound of stones, a karn, a great mound of stones was reared over him, which is still there today. That's Joshua 7:26. In the next episode in the story of Joshua, Joshua leads a campaign against the city of Ai. And here's at the end of that campaign, we have the following. Joshua dealt with all the dwellers in Ai as with men under the ban. That is to say, he killed everybody. For booty, Israel took only the cattle and the spoils of the town, according to the order Yahweh had given to Joshua. Then Joshua burned Ai, making it a ruin forevermore, a desolate place even today. He hanged the king of Ai from a tree until evening. 
After the public hanging, however, the following takes place. Joshua ordered his body to be taken down from the tree. It was then thrown down at the entrance to the town gate, and a great mound of stones, a cairn, was reared over it, and that and it is still there today. End quote. That's Joshua eight twenty nine. The the victim is under the pile of stones, this pyramidal pile of stones. By the way, the, the oldest pyramids, the Egyptian pyramids, have the tomb of the of the Pharaoh right dead center at ground level. Uh, so the pyramids themselves continue this uh, this motif. And I said last week the, diff- the difference between a king and a victim is minor. So the chiron is a mound of stones used as a marker and, and as a memorial. And at, at its heart is the victim, who cannot be seen because of all the stones used in his stoning. It's the it's the, it's the victim disappearing in the frenzy of the victimizing act. Suddenly, so it's a, it's a physical manifestation of an epistemological fact. The victim, the fact of the victim, the humanity of the victim disappears in the frenzy of the victimizing act. And the physical body of the victim disappears likewise under the mound of stone. The next verse in Joshua says the following. Then Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Elba, as Moses, Yahweh's servant, had ordered the sons of Israel. As is written in the book of the law of Moses, quote, an altar of undressed stones that no iron tool has ever worked. On this, they offered holocaust to Yahweh and offered communion sacrifices as well. At a structural level, at least, there can be no doubt that this mound of uncut stones uh, is the same as the mound of stones left after the stoning. In other words, the mound of stones becomes the first sacrificial altar, becomes the sacrificial shrine, whereupon thereafter animals are offered instead as a ritual reenactment of an actual stoning in the same way that the pharmacoi ritual in Athens was a reenactment in most instances, unless a supreme emergency happened and, a, and it reverted to human victimization. But uh, if it's not a supreme emergency, in ordinary times, ritual reenactments using uh, theatrical human victims, only theatrically killed, only killed in a symbolic sense, or u- using animal victims that are in fact slain. These are two ways of, of continuing the sacrificial harmonies without actually resorting to human bloodshed. So I mention that because the Sheep Gate is a part of the temple. We must understand it structurally, its relationship to the temple. An automatic moral reproach falling on certain people is a part of the pharmacos-scapegoat system wherever and whenever it's found. If there's an automatic moral reproach that falls upon somebody because of the color of their skin, because of their ethnicity, because of their gender, because of their age, because of their uh, physical uh, characteristics, uh, or whatever it is, then you you have the seeds of the pharmaco scapegoat system. And Jesus goes to that place 
where those are gathered who have been so marked, and he begins to do his work. He begins the rehabilitation of those people. That's at the level of anthropology, and I want to return to that, of course. But for the moment, I'd like to, to turn to the question of the conversion of those people, uh, those cripples who are gathered there. And so let me read the story. Uh, <clears throat> we've already read down to where Jesus comes into uh, where these people are, waiting for the water to move. By the way, there is a passage at the last part of verse 3 and, the, and all of verse 4, which is an interpolation is not in the Johannine text, which has this stuff about the angel of the Lord came down and made the water move and so on. That undermines what the text is trying to do. That, that Christianizes, in a way, or sanctifies, in a way, this, this, this pool and what it's all about. Uh, what John is trying to point out is that it is uh, it, it, what a, this pool purports to be a cure for the, as we would see it at the structural level, it purports to be a cure for the sacrificial system, but in fact it is a perpetuation of it. And this is precisely the point at the anthropological level that this text is making. So it's important that we do not include, I think, that, and most Bibles now leave those passages out, but if you happen to have one that has it in it, make a little note. Uh, that is not in the original text. And then we have the following. One man there had an illness which had lasted 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had been in this condition for such a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made whole? This is very interesting. You know, you do, usually you don't walk into the hospital ward and walk up to somebody and say, do you want to be made whole? Uh, but this is very, this is, this, is the, the, this is the Jesus of tough love here, by the way. This is not, uh, this is not some kind of sappy uh, th therapeutic Jesus. This is, this is tough stuff. And he says to him, hey, do you want to be healed? Are you ready to be healed? And the man doesn't answer. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. I want to do this in a little whining voice here. Sir, I have nobody to put me in the pool when the water is disturbed. And while I am still on the way, someone else gets there before me. Now, this, is, this would be an opportunity for somebody else to say, Well, let's talk about it. Or whatever. Jesus says, stand up. Stand up. And the word is the word for resurrection. Stand up. Straighten up. And pick up your sleeping mat. It's important here, the implication of drowsiness is, is inherent in this too. Pick up your sleeping mat and walk. The man was cured at once. He picked up his mat and walked away. Now, as I've said, when we, when we talked about the feeding of the multitude, I said, it doesn't matter. If somebody just pulls out of a basket, what's that matter? What matters is it, it, something is a miracle, or in John's case, a sign, only if it really changes the human heart. So, we, so this is only a miraculous healing. 
if this man is changed by it or if we can understand how this is a symbol for changing the human heart and not simply for curing sickness. At one level, mere, the mere curing of sickness has the effect of restoring the moral integrity of someone who's considered morally suspect because he has an illness. So at one level, we have to recognize that. But when this becomes a story about conversion, then we have to see it at another level because if this is just curing a man's physical sickness, so what? 20 years later, he gets another disease and dies. And if he dies in the same frame of mind that he was in when he had that one, what has the cure done? So we have to think about this cure as having... as John is, is talking about something else. This is his own autobiography. It's, it's the autobiography of his community. So what is being cured here? And I think we can appreciate what is being cured here uh, when we use the word invalid for those who were gathered there. Because I think what's being cured here is invalidity. Is, is a chronic case of invalidity. And when Jesus says, stand up, he is validating this man in a way that this man's religious system was unable to do. And that, I think, is at the heart of Christian conversion. But I want to come back to that for a, in a minute. First of all, let's notice what happens after Jesus do, uh, performs this cure. The, the temple authorities uh, see this man who is formerly uh, a cripple now carrying his sleeping mat, and what do they notice about this? What they notice about this is that it's a violation of the Sabbath law against carrying your sleeping mat on the Sabbath. And so immediately they focus in on this. This is a classic case of the... Of the of the hypo crisis, you know, the hypocritical uh, response, which is not necessarily hypocritical because it's it's uh, devious, but because it, it involves a penchant for missing the point and going and and dwelling on these little moral problems or religious code problems that have no significance at all. So they say to this man, "What are you doing, violating the Sabbath?" And he said, "Well, the man who cured me told me to do it. I'm doing it. I just got cured." They don't even notice that he got cured, except when he says, the man who cured me said to do this. He just cured you? Yes. He must have cured on the Sabbath. There's a law against curing on the Sabbath. <laughs> so now they're on to Jesus' case. Where can they find this guy? Because he's doing, he's doing something bad on the Sabbath. He's curing people. Meanwhile, and this man can't find Jesus. Jesus has been lost in the crowd, disappeared into the crowd. Uh, a little while later, the following happens, quoting the text. After a while, Jesus met the man in the temple and said, Now you are whole again. Be sure not to sin anymore or something worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus, as, you know, as I just said, in first century, Physical defects implied moral uh, defects, so sin, sickness and sin were equated. Jesus says to him, you're cured, sin no more. And so we say, wait a minute, is Jesus buying into this system? 
We know from chapter 9 and all the other things in this gospel and in others that Jesus did not buy into that system, that sickness was not a sign of sin. If he restored somebody's wholeness, he, he helped to rehabilitate them socially. But in his own mind, there was no connection between sickness and sin. Why is he saying to this man, sin no more? What is the definition of sin in the Johannine world? What does it mean to sin? What does Paul mean when he says we live in sin? Does he mean that just, we're just surrounded by all these little mistakes we make, these little foul-ups, these little screw-ups of ours? Is that living in sin? What is it? Something more fundamental than that. Jesus says to him, Remember, you have been made whole, which is a way of saying for the Johannine community, you have been converted. You are a converted self. Sin no more. Why would he say that? I think the reason he says that is because of where he finds him, namely in the temple. Now this is scandalous, but this is a scandalous gospel. Jesus goes to the temple to teach. But in this gospel particularly, there's, there's a constant sense that Jesus is there to challenge the temple and to replace it. Less so in the synoptics. You know, in Matthew, he says to, to uh, Jesus says, if, if you're going to the temple to offer sacrifices and you have a, a quarrel with your brother, settle the quarrel first. And then if you want to go and participate in the ritual sacrifices, fine, no big deal, not a big deal. First things first, you see. In other words, we're not going to rely on the sacrificial system for resolving human antagonisms anymore. But if you insist on continuing to participate in that system, that's fine. I mean, it's no big deal one way or another, but make sure you don't use it anymore to solve social problems. Because, parentheses, Jesus was at that moment beginning to undermine its ability to do that. In this gospel, there's not even that. This gospel gives no quarter to the temple at all. But Jesus is simply replacing the temple. So when he finds the man that he's just been, has just cured in the temple, notice what has happened. This man was symbolically or structurally part of the, the pool of potential victims and, all, and, and in a way, victims already in the sense that their social opprobrium was a necessary element in the righteousness of the righteous. You can't be righteous unless there's somebody around that's not. And so the existence of a known and physically obvious group of people who were unrighteous was the, a necessary element in the structure of righteousness. So they're already sacrificial victims, at least at that level. Jesus has re rehabilitated this man and next thing he finds he's become part of the practicing he, he has become a practitioner in the very sacrificial system for which he served as a, as a victim a few minutes before. And Jesus says to him sin no more. At this point participation in the system is, becomes a sin quote unquote precisely because Jesus has made it too conscious he has, de he has revealed, the, the, or at least at the structural level, re revealed the nature of the system and liberated this man from it. So now to return to it is sinful. This is like that thing I read from Paul where he says, before the law there was no sin, but when the law said thou shalt not covet, 
I sinned because I became conscious of what I was doing. And in this gospel, chapter 15, Jesus says, If I had not come, if I had not spoken to them, they would have been blameless. But as it is, they have no excuse for their sin. One of the things that I think is very striking in one of Gerard's books, he says, Jesus is not there in order to stress again. This is, I read this apropos of him finding this man in the temple. Instead of saying, a boy, uh, now you're, you're coming here and you're going to do things right. Gerard says, Jesus is not there in order to stress again in his own person the unified violence of the sacred. He is not there to ordain and govern like Moses. He is not there to unite a people around him, to forge its unity in the crucible of rights and prohibitions, but on the contrary, to turn this long page of human history once and for all. Okay, back now again for the second time to the question of conversion. Uh, I said our word, Greek, uh, English word invalid puts us at the heart of this story, I think. The invalidity. Uh, this man says, before I get there, someone else gets there before me. I think that's, that is the essence of his dis-ease, of his invalidity. Uh, this is a pool of invalids competing with one another in a kind of social lottery for the outside chance of validation, which is a product of the social competition. Very similar to the, to the modern world. You know, Andy Warhol says everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. Uh, in the modern world, that's what validity is. Social validity is the... Uh, approval or envy of others. And so Warhol says everybody gets 15 minutes of it sooner or later. What's important is not everybody gets... What's important is Warhol, who spent a long time trying to figure out how to get more than 15 minutes of it and was pretty good at that, realized how arbitrary it was. And that's what comes out in that flippant little remark of his, is the arbitrariness of it and the insubstantiality of it. 